There's multiple ways to do 1031s. A lot of the smaller 1031s might be just selling one property, buying another property. Um, however, um, a lot of the, the deals we are involved in are actually helping people become more passive. You're listening to Alternative Investor Mastermind, where we do a deep dive on alternative investment opportunities and the lifestyle it can create. Join Jack Krupe as he presents actionable tips and tricks in doing passive real estate away from mainstream strategies. Go beyond the usual fix and flips and try less explored yet rewarding investing ventures. From multifamily properties, mobile homes to cryptocurrencies, do not miss this opportunity to escape traditional assets and finally create wealth without Wall Street. Now your host, Jack. Hey, everybody. Today, I want to talk about 1031 tax deferred exchanges. Um, it's a very, very powerful rule. Uh, it's been incorporated in the tax code for, uh, for many decades and, uh, you know, it's, uh, can be pretty misunderstood. So, uh, it's something we've been focusing uh, a lot more on, uh, over the last year or two. And it's something that's very powerful in a way we've really been able to help uh, a number of investors. So, um, you know, I found that a lot of investors uh, are are unaware or they're vaguely aware about it. So hopefully we can uh, you know fill in some of the blanks here. Um, one of the key things is timing. Timing is tricky. Uh, you have uh, 45 days uh, after sale to identify um, a replacement property, and you have uh, 180 days to uh, to actually close the the purchase of the new property. Um, so that gets very tricky. It's like a, it's, it feels like a shotgun wedding uh, in some cases. Um, there's a lot of vendors to choose from. And I know there's a lot of, uh, concern about, you know, just using the, the right team of people to, uh, ensure that you have, uh, the proper intermediary, um, and, uh, the proper attorneys and accountants because there's multiple ways to do 1031s, a lot of the smaller 1031s might be just selling one property, buying another property. Um, however, um, a lot of the, the deals we are involved in are actually helping people become more passive. So um, that may mean selling one, two, three, four single family houses, for example, and then buying into one large apartment building. Um, through a structure called a tenant in common, where you actually own, you know, a piece of the building, um, but you'll actually own it alongside a professional uh, syndicate or a professional operating partner um, that uh, raises uh, the capital and operates that deal more traditionally. So um, it's a great way to sell some single-family rental properties, uh, reclaim more of your time, and uh, structure it, um, you know, in a way that you are more passive, but also in a more institutional quality asset. If you're owning a piece of a hundred to 200 unit building, you're not going to get those 2 a.m. phone calls about, um, you know, repair issues. It's, it's like owning a piece of a business. And, um, it, it's really the next level of, uh, of real estate investing. So, um, again, component wise, uh, first thing you need to do is you need to have this planned out before you start listing properties for sale, in my opinion, you really should have your game plan from day one. And um, if you decide you're going to go into a 1031 exchange, um, you should be identifying types of replacement properties, the types of investments you want to be in uh, before listing, because you never know in, a, in this market um, or in the market last year, you might list and have multiple offers within a week. 
Um, you need to look at what is your basis for the uh, property. Um, if you have used accelerated depreciation and your basis is down to uh, close to zero, then you'll be 1031-ing kind of the entire proceeds. But if your gain is smaller, you may be able to 1031 a portion of your proceeds. Um, you also need to look at your debt service coverage. If you have a certain loan to value and a certain mortgage balance, um, the amount that you need to have in debt on the new property needs to be similar as well. So if you have a property that had relatively high leverage and you're 1031ing pretty quickly, you may need to be in a property that has you know, a reasonable loan to value. Uh, if you had a property that was free and clear, um, it is likely not as much uh, of an issue. A um, couple, uh, couple gotchas uh, that we've seen. Um, if you're going to try to do seller financing, it makes a 1031 extremely difficult. Um, unless the down payment is so much significantly more than the amount that you're, you're holding as a mortgage, um, yeah, that, that can become a, a, a major roadblock for, for the 1031. So, um, you know, if you're thinking of doing seller financing, you should kind of have an alternative game plan. Um, the good thing about seller financing and installment sales is they do have their own tax benefits. You actually can spread your capital gain uh, over a period of years as opposed to um, taking it uh, all at once. Uh, however, you do need to be careful um, about when that loan repays. So if, for example, you own or finance a property and then the borrower decides a year later on December 28th to refinance and they pay you off in full, your entire tax bill may will be due that year and it'll come through as you know probably a surprise to you. So uh, we actually um, recommended recently to um, you know just an investor that we were talking to to uh, include either a prepayment penalty or uh, just some language that you know provided reasonable notice for when the loan would be paid off to avoid that uh, tax issue. That, that's uh, no, nobody wants a, a tax surprise. And uh, you know, again, with proper planning and proper structuring, if you do go the route of uh, owner finance or seller financing, which uh, in, in today's market with the higher rates and uh, you know, who knows how long they, they stay higher, but owner financing is going to be significantly more prevalent, uh, I think, in the coming years, just because um, of where rates are right now, and it just uh, it does make the the, the sale process a lot smoother, but it's not the most conducive to a uh, 1031 exchange. So um, the key, the key, I think the biggest benefit of, of these 1031 exchanges in, in the syndication market is that ability to reclaim more of a passive lifestyle. Um, if you own multiple single family houses, it, it's, it, it tends to be really tough to scale. And I, I think often many investors have, you know, it's turned into a second job or, or a full-time job for them. So um, you can take multiple single families or multiple smaller apartments, um, sell them, and then identify a larger um, building to buy in partnership with a large uh, syndicator and or investment firm like like ours, where we we're sourcing deals like this uh, um, every day, and uh, with some proper planning, we can work together to uh, identify you know an area or uh, you know a number of properties with a number of of great operating partners that uh, will work with 1031 investors. Okay, I want to highlight a couple common mistakes uh, for a uh, 
1031 is uh, first things first is not looking for the replacement property soon enough. Um, we, we've had countless calls from people that had 10 days left and uh, just uh, unable to, to, to figure things out in time. Usually those people were trying to find their own property um, as opposed to uh, going into one of these larger partnerships. Um, second thing is not starting the 1031 in time. Uh, you cannot take the money into your own account. You need to have a qualifying intermediary uh, from the start. Um, acquiring property from a related party, there are some limitations on who you can acquire the property from. And lastly, using a disqualified party as the actual intermediary or, or closing agent you know, it needs to be an arm's length transaction. All right, so how do the logistics work? And we're not going to go too deep into that at the moment, but uh, you know, in general, you are selling your property, the funds go to a qualified intermediary, and then you are actually going into partnership on the new property as a tenant in common. Now, typically we are working with syndicated deals where you're part of an LLC and you're um, you know, signing a private placement and there's an operating agreement that outlines all the fees. Um, in this scenario, you actually own a piece of the deed. So it is a tenant in common where you have fee simple ownership. Uh, however, you don't want to be the one managing the property. Um, so there is a, typically a, a management agreement that uh, is set up between what I'd call the lead sponsor or the operating partner who's going to be the day-to-day -day, uh, decision maker. They'll be the ones that you know oversee the property management, collect rent, um, execute on a uh, value-add strategy. And, uh, you know, there are um, fees that come along with that. And uh, there are some rules and regulations, but, you know, the goal is to, you know, in a compliant way, match the fees somewhat to what the uh, property, you know, the partner or property manager would have made if they just took money into the syndication itself. So um, there's a, sometimes a little bit of structuring, but uh, in, in general, you know, you expect to pay a, a similar amount of, of fees to um, what someone who just came in as a limited partner would get. Um, and at the same time, you know, you should make, um, you know, reasonable expectation of profits similar to what other investors would get. Um, I will say that doing a tenant in common from all of the deals I've, I've looked at is generally a higher return uh, investment than doing a Delaware statutory trust and lower fees. Um, the Delaware statutory trusts uh, have a lot of regulations and, uh, you know, they can't really be a heavy value add. They're, they're really designed to be, you know, much lower return. And, you know, there's some regulations that I guess seek to make them safer, but um, I don't even know if, if that's the case. I mean, we're a big proponent of, of the value add market. So, you know, I don't necessarily know that buying this like a ten, uh, Delaware statutory trust of this class A trophy property um, that you know has probably more downside risk than than a lot of deals we're in. I don't know if they're even necessarily safer. So, a uh, big proponent of doing a tenant in common structure into a syndicated deal over a Delaware statutory trust uh, whenever possible. Quick note on a few deals uh, that that we were involved in. Um, we had a client um, about a year ago uh, go into a property in uh, South Carolina. Um, pretty easy process. The uh, Attorneys and accountants handled most of the work. Uh, luckily, the, the, the partner that we work with is very familiar with how to set it up. So they have a good team in place. Um, worked very closely with uh, the uh, the buyer, the investor who was selling the property, their legal team, and the, the operating team worked really closely together. It was a pretty, pretty simple transaction. Um, there's also opportunities to potentially, if you're a large investor in a deal, 
convert your LP position into a tenant in common. So if you've made, and this is something you need to have made a half million, million dollar investment, but if you're in a, a traditional syndication deal and you've said, written a million dollar check as an example, uh, there is a way, as long as you do it in advance, to potentially convert yourself um, from a traditional LP into a tenant in common. And uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's there's more to it. You know, there's uh, sometimes the lender is going to need to consent, so it may not apply in every situation. But there is a way to uh, trade out and become a, a uh, tenant in common in a deal, so that when the property sells and you were just one of the LPs, you may be able to change it over to be in the syndication. And in, in uh, sorry, you might be able to change over and then become a tenant in common, so that if if a property sells that you're part of the syndication, you may be able to then ten thirty one out of it. Um, otherwise, largely, if you're in a, a fund or if you're in a syndicate with multiple investors in general, unless all of the investors are going to consent and you're just going to uh, go from one property to another, usually um, that's one of the, the gotchas that stops you from being able to 1031. It's not impossible, but you know if you've, if you've written a seven-figure check into a deal, it's something you might be able to look into with your, uh, with your advisors. A couple other notes. Um, we have uh, JCAM Investments. We have a few interesting... Um, Deals we are we are looking at. Um, we are looking at a uh, property in Houston that actually has a two point five percent interest rate that we are going to be able to assume. So those of you that are worried about um, interest rate risk, um, we've got two point five percent rate long term debt. It's a HUD loan that's being assumed. Um, there's no income restrictions on this HUD loan. It's just uh, happens to be through HUD. It's not one of those programs that that you know forces. Uh, um, Section Eight or low-income housing. It's a. It's actually a almost a Class A asset in the medical area, uh, medical center of Houston, and um, also looking at a uh, marina, uh, marina and RV parks. Uh, that's an asset class that's been growing. Um, something we followed for uh, recent years, and um, you know it's uh, something we're pretty excited about. Uh, very similar to self storage. Very similar to mobile home parks. It's an asset class that's largely owned by mom and pop investors. And uh, we're excited. We've got a, a really good operating partner that's very experienced. Uh, uh, they all came from corporate roles at larger uh, operators. And now they're, they've started a, a, you know, a fund and a syndicate that's going to be uh, buying and rolling up these complexes. Uh, sorry, these marinas and RV parks doing value add and... Uh, they uh, have the connections to sell them. If they can build up a uh, significant amount of, uh, of properties, this is a, a pretty straightforward private equity roll-up strategy where um, you build to a scale where a larger operator will pay a premium and, and acquire at a lower cap rate. So uh, it's something that JCAM we're super excited about, spent a, a fair amount of time reviewing the asset class. And um, one of the best parts is the cash on cash will be higher from day one. So it will supplement the cash flow for our fund, um, our diversified fund, and those looking for individual deals that have a higher cash on cash return than a typical uh, multifamily, which I still love. Um, but we are going to um, likely have uh, some opportunities for for higher current cash on cash through uh, through RV parks uh, and marinas. And uh, the interesting part is these are all inland marinas. These are really parts of uh, ones that are on lake, so we're not as worried about uh, you know hurricane risk or uh, you know, some of the just saltwater uh, issues that uh, create some challenges. So um, that's it for today's episode. Um, we will be uh, back uh, next week. Uh, and uh, we encourage everyone to please uh, follow us, uh, follow our YouTube channel, JCAM Investments. 
Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify and uh, connect with us on our social media, whether it's me personally, uh, Jack Krupe on Facebook uh, and Instagram or uh, our company page, JKM Investments on uh, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. So uh, thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. That's all for this episode of Alternative Investor Mastermind. Now that you know the many alternative opportunities out there all up for the taking, you can finally become ultra-connected and ultra-wealthy. Get more valuable advice from the experts by subscribing to the show at alternativeinvestormastermind.com. Become a winner in the world of passive investing today in alternative investment strategies. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.